Good afternoon. It is a joy and a blessing to be here. We uh, missed you all last week. We uh, treasure this group of people, our, our spiritual family here, and the encouragement of spending time together. And it's good to be back. Uh, if your Bibles aren't already open to Acts chapter 6, I ask that you'll turn them there now. We'll be uh, focusing most of our study, uh, at least uh, starting from this passage here in Acts chapter 6. Uh, over the past few weeks, I've been doing a lot of study in the book of Acts. In our uh, Forest Hill study on, on Tuesday afternoons, I've been teaching through Acts. In our meetup study uh, in Bakery Square on Monday evenings twice a month, we're starting to study through Acts. Uh, and in our authority class that we just finished, there is a, a lot of focusing in on the book of Acts, the pattern of the, the New Testament church. And what, one thing that has stood out to me recently is, is this passage here in Acts 6. We, we see in Acts, as we see the, the word of God beginning to spread, the disciples multiplying, they start encountering some persecution from without, and some challenges from persecution from the, the Jewish leaders and the, the Pharisees. But they also start encountering some struggles within. We see that first in Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, and then here again in Acts chapter 6. Uh, so, something threatens from within to stop this spread of the word. And so they address this situation um, so that the word of God might continue to spread. And that's exactly what we see happens in verse 7. The, the word of God continues to spread and the number of the disciples continue to increase. But the, but the phrase that I want us to focus in on today is in verse 2. How the apostles respond to this situation when we see that the Grecian widows are being neglected in the daily serving uh, or ministry. And at verse 2 it says, so the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. What exactly do they mean by that? What, what does it mean to neglect the word of God to serve tables? And why was that a concern? Uh, and how does that apply to us today? Does it apply to us today? Is that something that we need to be concerned about? You know, uh, among some, neglecting the word of God to serve tables might be an accurate description of, of what the gospel has become. Uh, if we turn to a, a social or humanitarian gospel that puts the primary focus on fixing the physical problems of this world, poverty, homelessness, hunger, disease, oppression, you know, then we might fall into this trap that they're talking about. Uh, and before we know it, we might be preaching a slightly watered-down version of the health and wealth gospel. But still, I think there's a danger, and we're going to talk about both, I think there's a danger that we do the opposite, and that we dismiss serving tables altogether. And we think that showing compassion to people's physical and temporal needs has no place among God's people. And we disregard it, or we belittle it, or we feel that it is inherently unspiritual or unimportant. And so we have the, these two ends that I think we, we need to consider. Where, where is the balance? What role does serving tables, as they say it here, what role does serving people's physical needs play among God's people? And what role does it not play? How do we keep this balanced perspective? Uh, how do we keep a biblical perspective on benevolence and evangelism. And so what I hope we can do today is look to the scriptures, start with a clean slate, and let the scriptures show us 
uh, how each of these concerns should be handled within the church. I, I think we all, through our own experiences and own uh, per perspectives, may feel that one of these two is, is more of a danger than the other. Maybe we feel that, that we're more prone to neglecting serving people's physical needs. Maybe that's what we've seen uh, among our, ourselves or among our brethren. We feel that's, that's a great danger. Or maybe we're, we're more conscious of falling off to where we make the gospel entirely about social and physical needs. And we see that as a bigger danger. And we've talked about this illustration before uh, of going along a mountain road. And you, you see a sheer drop off on one side and then you see oncoming traffic on the other side. Well, well what are you going to do? Some might say, well, we, we need to get as far away from that cliff as possible or else we're going to fall off. Well, you might get hit by oncoming traffic. Well, as others might say, well, those cars are zooming by pretty fast. We need to get way over here. Well, you might fall off the cliff. And so the solution is not to react to one or the other. The solution is to stay in between the lines, is to go to the scripture, let it direct us. And that's what I want us to try to do today. Uh, is neglecting the word of God to serve tables a danger? And if so, in what way? How should we view benevolent needs? How we, should we view our mission of evangelism? Uh, this is not going to be a deep exegetical sermon. We're not going to take any one passage and, and dig deep into it. What we're going to try to do is to get an overview of all that the scripture says about this. So we're going to look at a lot of different scriptures today, but we're going to try to get a big picture approach of really our, our role as God's people and what role serving tables does play among us. And I think the, the first thing that we need to recognize here is that there is a place, a place, for serving tables. Uh, you notice here in chapter 3 and verse 6, the solution, they say, Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom you may put in charge of this task. The solution was not, well, why are you coming to us about that? That's not important. They, they didn't belittle it. They didn't dismiss it. They didn't ignore the need. They didn't say, well, you know, Go get a job, beg on the street corner for all I care. That's not our job. No, they in fact take seven men to take care of this problem. And so it's not, while they had a concern here that we're going to address about allowing this to dominate their focus and allowing this to distract them from the message of salvation that they should be proclaiming, it's not that they dismiss this entirely. There was a role for God's people to be taking care of, yes, even the physical needs of one another. While they did not want this to distract them from the primary mission, this was still an important work. And in fact, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 16, Hebrews 13 and verse 16, we're told, and do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. And so, while here they were concerned about neglecting the word of God to serve tables, in Hebrews 13, verse 16, we're told, do not neglect doing good and sharing. Because that is honoring to God. That brings glory to God. That, in a sense, is an act of worship to God, a sweet-smelling aroma to Him, a sacrifice that pleases Him. And so, we shouldn't just view this type of service as unspiritual. There is a role in which serving people's physical and temporal needs plays uh, among God's people. Acts chapter 10 and verse 38. 
when Peter is describing Jesus to Cornelius. Notice the words that he uses to describe Jesus. He says, you know about Jesus of Nazareth, how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. If Jesus was described as going about doing good, do you think maybe that his people should be described as people who go about and do good? And while we need to focus on the primary problem of sin, uh, the source of our problem, uh, certainly in, in ministering to the, the world around us, that may very well involve uh, addressing the side effects of sin within the world, the consequences of sin within the world, the, the suffering and uh, uh, oppression that, that sin brings. And so just as Jesus was one who did seek to do good, we as Christians, as his followers, should be people who seek to do good, not only to the inward spiritual well-being, uh, eternal well-being of the soul, but also, yes, even to the physical circumstances of people around us. James chapter 1 and verse 27. What are we told pure and undefiled religion is? It says, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Part of true religion, true spirituality, it's not that this, well, that, that's just physical, that, that's non-spiritual. Well, no, we, we are in practicing true religion and honoring God and showing the love of Christ, reflecting God's character um, to minister to those who are distressed and dispirited to offer support and comfort and encouragement, even provision for their needs. So while there is some danger here that the apostles were concerned about, not neglecting the word of God to serve tables, there is also a danger of neglecting doing good and sharing. And so we need not to entirely dismiss this and say, well, that's not important, or belittle the, the role of, of serving people's physical needs. We do see that that has a place uh, has a place within the church and certainly has a place within the daily life of the Christian that we should be reflecting the love of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, and that often will be shown in ministering to people's physical needs. But as we see this shown throughout the New Testament, uh, I want us to first of all recognize that this is primarily, first and foremost, a responsibility we have to each other. Serving tables as a means of outreach into the community is conspicuously absent in the New Testament. Not once do we see an example of the New Testament church using its collective resources to try to reach out into the community by means of serving people's physical needs. Now we see numerous examples of the early church using its collective resources to address physical needs. But every single time we see that, we see them doing this towards one another. Uh, page after page of the New Testament, we see the local church having fellowship with one another by sharing of their physical resources and providing for each other's needs. Turn back to Acts chapter 4. because so we see this very early on in the church. From the very beginning of the New Testament church, we see them having this type of physical fellowship with one another. You look in Acts chapter 4, starting verse 32, it says, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, 
And not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Very early on, they're using their collective resources. They're making contributions at the apostles' feet for the purpose of providing for the physical needs of one another. But we see this deeply linked with the idea of their unity and their fellowship with one another. Uh, that they were of one heart and one soul. They were all together. They had this fellowship, this communion, and it was expressed by providing for one another's physical needs. And this is exactly what we see in Acts chapter 6, the passage that we're looking at here together. Among the disciples, as the disciples grew, they were providing for those who were needy among them, those who couldn't provide for themselves, the, the widows. And even to the point in this context where there is some daily ministry, uh, some daily provision of needs for those who are not able to provide for themselves. Uh, and as we continue throughout Acts and we continue throughout the New Testament, we see time after time the church is involved in this, but always it is directed towards needy saints, towards their brethren. Acts chapter 11, verse 29 and 30, we see a famine arises in Judea. And it says in verse 29, And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in the charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. So here the disciples in Antioch took up a contribution for the relief of the brethren in Judea who were facing this famine. Um, the scope here is now expanded beyond the local church, but is still directed towards their brethren having fellowship with those Christians in other places, those uh, who are still within the family of God. And as we look through Paul's epistles, as he puts part of his focus upon gaining this, this collection for the saints in Judea, we see in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 1, Paul says, now concerning the collection for the saints. He gave the ins these instructions to the churches of Galatia. He gave these instructions to Corinth uh, about using their collective resources for the saints. In Romans 15, verse 25 and 26, uh, Paul says that Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So as prevalent as providing for benevolent needs is among the New Testament church, in every case of collective benevolence, it was always directed towards saints and act of fellowship with their brethren. All of this benevolence was not outreach. It was not uh, something that they were providing for the need, physical needs of the world around them, but it was an example of their fellowship and their bond and their love for one another. And I think we see that Jesus emphasized this unique love and fellowship that his people would share with one another. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. Jesus here speaking to his disciples. And he gives them a new commandment, he says in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
how is it that we're going to show all men that we are Jesus's disciples? We say, well, our love is what's going to show that we're Jesus's disciples. But, but notice specifically in this context where that love is directed. He says they're going to know you by your love for one another. And that's not, and, and we're going to focus on this later, that, that's not that we don't show them Jesus' love for the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But here, specifically, the focus is they're going to know that you're my people, that you're my disciples because of the bond that you share with one another, because of your love for one another. The world should particularly be impressed by the type of love they see among us. They should see that we treat each other like family. They provide for each other. They support and encourage each other. There is some sort of bond there that defies earthly explanation. And so we see this great obligation that we have for providing for and loving and showing that love for one another in particular. Matthew 25 and verse 40. Matthew 25, we have this judgment scene uh, where Jesus the king stands up and, and separates between those on his right and his left hand. And he says in chapter 25, verse 40, says, The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. Now, Certainly, I think we can make a proper application of this passage to showing Jesus' love for all of humanity. But I think we should see when Jesus says, one of these brothers of mine, who, who are the brothers of Jesus in the New Testament? Remember back in Matthew chapter 12, verse 49, when his physical mothers and brothers came and asked where he was? It says in chapter 12, verse 49, And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. Who were Jesus' brothers? It says his disciples. So I think there's a sense here in which, in particular, Jesus is emphasizing the way that we treat one another. The way that we treat our brothers, Jesus' brothers, uh, in showing our love for each other in particular. James chapter 2, verse 15 and 16 when we talk about faith and works and how a true faith, a living faith, is one that will show itself in our works. Well, notice what type of works is James talking about. James chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, he says, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm to be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? What type of works will genuine faith produce? Well, in this context, the example that he uses is providing for a brother or a sister. And so we see this emphasis time and time and time again on providing for one another. That our love for one another, the type of bond, the type of fellowship that we share with one another should testify to the fact that we are Jesus' disciples that they see God's love among us. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10, Galatians 6 and verse 10, we're told, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, some look at this passage, and 
use this as, as authority for the, the local church collectively using its resources to provide for the physical needs of the world around us. Now, I, I think at, at very least we are treading on, on very dangerous ground to say that this passage gives us authority on a collective level to do that um, and not simply an individual level. But even if it does, even if it did, I want you to notice the primary point that he's making here. He does say at the end, especially to those who are of the household of faith. He says our greater obligation, our first obligation when it comes to serving tables, when it comes to serving physical needs, is exactly what we see example of throughout the entire New Testament. And that is providing for each other's needs. Ministering to those who are of the household faith. Showing this familial bond that we share with one another. This fellowship that we share in that way. And so our first responsibility when it comes to benevolence is the household of faith. We need to show that familial love, fellowship among God's people, and let that light shine to the world around us. Now, having made that point, uh, let me put another caveat upon a caveat. Certainly, as individual Christians, there is no question we still have a a responsibility and a role to show Jesus' love to all people. Now, even if we don't see example or authority of that uh, being something that the collective church was engaged in, outreach into the community through focusing on physical needs, there's no question that as individuals, that is something that we should and must be expressing. Galatians 6.10 that we just read said that as we have opportunity, we are to do good to all, especially to those who are in the household of faith. So as individual Christians, there's no question we need to be reaching out uh, and serving, showing compassion, showing love to the world around us just as Jesus did. We already read Acts chapter 10, verse 38. How is Jesus described? One who went about doing good. And so we as individual Christians need to be people who go about doing good. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1 and 2, we read, Let the love of the brethren continue, but then notice verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing. So there, first of all, he mentions in verse 1, showing the love of the brethren that we've been talking about. Um, That is a very definite responsibility of the church collectively. But then in verse 2, he says as well, We, uh, at least as individuals, need to be showing hospitality towards strangers, even towards people that we don't know. Even as Abraham did, we might end up uh, hosting an angel, (laughs) is the example that he gives. Uh, And so while our primary responsibility may be to minister to one another's physical needs, this does not mean that it releases us from the responsibility to serve anyone and everyone that we have an opportunity to serve. And the love and compassion of Jesus is not restricted towards his own household. As we said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Notice in Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says there in verse 43, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
And so while certainly as a collective group of God's people, our, our first responsibility uh, and our only authority, I believe, is to provide for the needs among us, to take care of, of those who are among the household of God, uh, there is no question that if we're going to show the love of Jesus, it can't be limited to that. If we're going to show the love of Jesus, it needs to reflect day to day and every opportunity that we have to minister to anyone's physical needs, to show his compassion, to feel his compassion as he felt, as he looked at the suffering and the predicament of the world around him. And so just because serving the physical needs of the world around us may not be our mission as Christians, it does not mean it is not our responsibility. Uh, it is part of expressing the character of Christ in our daily lives. It is part of showing his love and his compassion. And so while I do want us to go back and focus on chapter 6, verse 2, where they express this concern about neglecting the word of God to serve tables, I want to make it very clear. Serving tables had a role within the New Testament church. Uh, and serving tables was something that they, they even appointed seven men to take care of in this case. And so providing for the physical needs of our brethren is something that is our responsibility, is part of what God would have us to do as his people. But having spent the first you know, two-thirds of our lesson giving this important caveat, I want us to look at the other side now. What were they concerned about here? What, what does it mean when they say it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. I think what we will see as we look through the scriptures uh, is that as important as serving tables may be among our brethren uh, and even for the individual Christian within the community around us, we cannot allow this to take center stage and distract from what is most important. As Christians and as God's church, we need not to lose focus on what man's deepest needs are. As we look in the New Testament, really throughout the scriptures, the Bible time and time again urges us to look beyond the fleshly and the physical and see the deeper needs of our spirit. I want you to consider Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus, as he is being tempted by the devil, he has fasted, gone without food for 40 days and 40 nights. Imagine that for a moment. Forty days without food. He is on the brink of starving to death. He probably looks a lot like one of those pictures of malnourishment that we see in third world countries or, or uh, in the concentration camps in the World War II. Here he has gone 40 days without any nourishment. And yet Jesus didn't do that because there was some limited food source. He did that by choice. Why? What, what was the purpose of fasting? Well, I think Jesus really describes that purpose when he answers the devil. When, when the devil tempts him to, to turn this stone into bread, what does he say Matthew 4 and verse 4? He says, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Where was Jesus' focus? Even when it came to him personally, is that it's not about the flesh. It's not about nourishing the flesh. It's not about feeding the flesh. That's not what's most important here. What's most important is being nourished on the word of God. What, what were the apostles worried about in Acts chapter 6? It's not desirable that we neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. 
And so he chose to fast here, focusing on the needs of his spirit rather than on the hunger of his flesh in order to focus on the word of God above his necessary food. And Jesus encouraged that same type of focus in those around him. Consider John chapter 6. John chapter 6, we see Jesus, uh, certainly in this context, providing for the physical needs of those around him. Uh, Jesus didn't force others to reach the state of uh, emaciation that he himself had reached in his 40 days in the wilderness. These people who are out there to to listen to the word, he has concern for his physical need. He feeds the 5,000. But notice in verse 26 and 27 of this passage, after they had followed Jesus to the other side of the sea, it says, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. Jesus' focus was not on his flesh, was not on the physical, even legitimate physical needs of his flesh. It was on the word of God. Where did he want their focus to be? Do not labor for the food which perishes. That shouldn't be your focus. That's not what's most important. Where you need to focus is the nourishing of your soul by the word of God. Later on in verse 63, Jesus says, It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and our life. The flesh profits nothing. Brethren, if, if we take care of the flesh without taking care of the spirit, it is pointless. It is worthless. It profits nothing. And so as we've already said, Serving people's physical needs has a role in expressing compassion, expressing the love of Christ, even a responsibility among God's people. But we cannot let this take center stage because it's not what's most important. Taking care of people's physical needs, prolonging their physical life, is not what Jesus came to accomplish. And we need to see the world through Jesus' eyes. I want you to turn to Mark chapter 2. Here... We have a story of Jesus healing a lame man. In the first part of chapter 2, we see this lame man being carried by four friends on a pallet. And they want to get him to Jesus so he can be healed. And they even, when they aren't able to get into the house because of the crowd, what do they do? They, they go up onto the roof, they tear back. The, the top of the roof, they uh, let him down into the house so that he can reach Jesus. You, you think if you were in that room and you were listening to Jesus' teaching, all of a sudden the, the roof opens up and you see this lame man being lowered down on a pallet. Do, do you think you would understand why this man came? Immediately, you would see him and you'd say, oh, this man needs to be healed. And everybody in that room knew why that man was there. But I want you to notice in verse 5 what Jesus' initial response is. It says, And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak this way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? 
Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. What is Jesus' initial reaction here? Everybody knew why that man was there. Everybody knew this man needed to be healed of his physical condition. Jesus saw something deeper. Jesus saw something more urgent. And he says, son, your sins are forgiven. That's the primary healing that this man needed. And I think throughout the scriptures, we see Jesus' compassion for people's physical situation. Um, I, I don't know that the only reason that he healed this man was so that they may see that he had the authority for, to forgive sins. But in the context here, that is the primary reason. Here, if, if Jesus had healed this man of his sins and sent him home, the, the primary role of Jesus would have still been accomplished. And yet he says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, pick up your pallet and walk. If Jesus had healed that man of his lameness and had not cleansed his sins, would Jesus' mission have, have been complete there? The man would have been able to walk around for a few years as long as his body remained in this fleeting existence. That wouldn't have done him much good, would it? I think we need to learn to see the world through Jesus' eyes. That we don't just see the physical need. Jesus had compassion on physical needs. There's no question about it. But that we see the more primary need of the soul. Even if this man had spent the rest of his life confined to the bed, the more important thing was that his soul had a hope of eternal release from the limitations of that corruptible body. In Revelation, we see two different churches, the church in Laodicea and the church in Smyrna. And Jesus encourages these churches to adopt his perspective of their needs. In Revelation 3, verse 17 and 18, we see the church in Laodicea. They say, Jesus says, You say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. They said, all our physical needs are taken care of. We're, we're, we're doing great. And Jesus says, no, you're not. No, you, you are in poverty, you are wretched, you are miserable, you are blind, you are naked. Your primary needs here are suffering. And yet, in contrast to that, the church in Smyrna in Revelation 2 and verse 9, Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Jesus didn't see a big problem with his children being in physical poverty. He didn't see a big problem with his children facing physical persecution and tribulation. In fact, that was something that, as we're reading in 1 Peter, he allowed for their good. And yet he saw a huge problem when their souls were not in the right condition, when their souls were not clothed, when their souls were not fed when they were lacking the riches of his grace. And so, at, at times, we, we need to be down to earth 
in uh, addressing maybe immediate needs, practical needs. But I think there's a danger in becoming so down to earth that we forget what it's all about. It's not about this earth. It's not about this flesh. It's not about this body. It's not about these physical needs. And brethren, if we miss heaven, we have missed it all. If the gospel that we preach fails to focus on the eternal salvation of our souls, if that's not center stage, brethren, we are neglecting the word of God to serve tables. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, Paul says, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Does Christ help us in this life? Certainly. Uh, Godliness has a promise of this life and the life to come, we're told in 1 Timothy. In this life, serving Christ can bring a peace and a hope and a joy that nothing in this life within itself can provide. But Paul says, if our hope in Christ is confined to this life, then we are most to be pitied. Because while we do have a, a spiritual peace and a spiritual hope and a spiritual joy, as we read in 1 Peter this morning, that focus is on heaven, on the salvation of our souls. It's not focused on what Christ simply gives us here. In this life, as Christians, we are going to have to make sacrifices. We aren't going to necessarily have all the health and the, and the, and the wealth that we want. We might have to suffer persecution. We might have to be like those in Smyrna who are suffering poverty. And yet, if our focus is where it needs to be, that shouldn't matter. Because the focus of the gospel is not simply about making our life here on earth more comfortable. It's certainly not about making it more comfortable. It's not about simply making our life here on earth better. It's about giving us the hope of spending eternity in God's presence. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not about making our life here on earth better. It's not about making the journey more enjoyable. You've heard it said, well, it's not about the destination. It's about the journey. That's not what the Bible says. In the Bible, it is all about the destination. You know, if, if, if you were uh, cruising on a, on a riverboat down the Niagara River, and you found out that, you know, you were coming up uh, along the, the waterfall, and the uh, announcer came on and said, oh, don't worry. It's not about the destination. It's about the journey. W would you be okay with that? No. So, brethren, we need to recognize that while God has given us many blessings here, and we can have great joy and great hope and great peace, it is not about this life. And our mission in reaching out to the world around us is not just to make their life here on earth better. It is to help them spend an eternity in God's presence, free from all tears and all sorrow and all pain and all dying. Brethren, if we've missed heaven, we've missed it all. And so we must not lose focus on our primary mission. What was Jesus' mission in coming to earth? Was Jesus' mission to solve the problem of world hunger? Was it to solve the problem of poverty or solve the problem of physical oppression? 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15 
Paul writes, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. What did Jesus come to save us from? Was it simply disease and oppression and poverty? No, he came to save us from sin. Jesus' mission was to redeem us from the bondage of sin, save our souls from eternal destruction. This is the gospel. This is the message of Jesus Christ. And we see it throughout the gospels. Jesus makes purpose statements about his coming. Luke chapter 4 and verse 43, he says that he came to preach the kingdom of God. In John 18, he tells Pilate that kingdom is not of this world. And in Matthew 20 and verse 28, Jesus did say he did not come to be served, but to serve. But what does he say right after that? And to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus didn't just come to serve physical needs. Now we see him doing that. There's no doubt about it. We see him showing his compassion and his love in that way. But that wasn't his mission. His mission was to give his life a ransom for many. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Was it to make our lives here on earth better? Not at all. Jesus allowed his hands and his feet to be nailed to that cross. Jesus let his lifeblood drain away. Jesus gave up his spirit upon the cross so that you and I could be saved from eternal destruction, eternal separation from God. And when we lose focus on that, when the gospel that we preach and the mission that we pursue no longer has the cross as the forefront, brethren, we have corrupted the gospel. We need to make sure that we are not neglecting the gospel, the word of God, the message of salvation in order to serve tables. And what is the great commission that Jesus gave? Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20. As Jesus is giving what we might call his dying wish. He had already died, but he is now ascending into heaven. What, what is his final statement in the Gospel of Matthew? What is his final commission to his disciples? He says in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of age. He doesn't say, go into all the world and heal the sick. Go into all the world and release the, the prisoners. Go into all the world and feed the hungry. Go into all the world and comfort the oppressed. Now, as we already said, there is a place for that. There is a role for that. But that wasn't the primary mission. These may be part of our work and our responsibility as Christians, but they are not our primary mission. They must not distract from proclaiming the gospel of eternal salvation, cleansing souls through baptism, and making disciples making disciples who will walk after the teaching of Jesus. Back in Acts chapter 6, where we started here, we see that one of the concerns of the apostles was that they would become so caught up in taking care of these physical things that they would neglect what was their primary message, what was their primary message mission. And as we see, they, they take care of that. They assign seven men to 
make sure that these physical needs are provided for. But what do they say? They say, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so what is the result down in verse 7? Here we see this problem arose and threatened to distract their focus from the word of God. But in verse 7, after they take care of it, it says the word of God kept on spreading. And the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. What made disciples? The spreading of the word. Here they are fulfilling that great commission of preaching the gospel, of saving souls, of baptizing disciples. And we see it two men in this list in verse 5 are names that we're familiar with. Stephen, Philip. Why are we familiar with Stephen and Philip? Well, these were men who were put in charge of the task of taking care of these Grecian widows. But as we continue to read through the book of Acts, why do we know so much about Stephen and Philip? Because they were preaching the word of God. These men who who were even given charge of this physical task are continuing to be consumed with the the work of spreading the word. In Acts chapter 7, we see Stephen, and in the end of chapter 6, him teaching him preaching. And then in Acts chapter 8, evidently after the persecution comes, the saints are dispersed from Jerusalem. Uh, Philip evidently no longer has this role of taking care uh, of these Grecian widows because he goes out into Samaria, and we're going to say later in Caesarea. What is he doing? He's preaching the word. Teaching Simon the sorcerer, teaching the Ethiopian eunuch. Fulfilling the Great Commission. Baptizing disciples. And so, brethren, I I hope that as we've looked at all the scriptures, uh, we can get a biblical perspective of these things. We can have a balanced perspective. There's a danger on both sides. There is a danger that we look at physical things, serving tables, and we say, well, that's not important. We don't need to do that. But there's another danger, uh, the danger that is addressed here in Acts 6 that we allow this to distract us from what is most important, the needs of our souls, the hope of heaven, the message of eternal salvation in the gospel. So what about us? As we put down the mirror, we look at our own hearts, uh, do we have Jesus' perspective? Do we have God's perspective on this? If not, what do I need to change? If you recognize you need to change something, today in your thinking and your heart and your actions. Make that change. Make that change as you leave here now. And if you recognize something in your heart and in your life uh, that has made you out of fellowship with God, if there's some sin that you need to make right, maybe you need to ask for the prayers of these brethren. Maybe it's a sin that you need to confess before these brethren. We want to offer you that opportunity. And if you've never committed your life to the Lord, if you need to become one of those disciples, no, it's, it's not about this life. This life is just the journey, but the destination is eternal. And if you need to commit your life to the Lord, to bury the old man of sin in baptism, you can be raised to walk in newness of life as a disciple of Christ, a child of God, have a hope of eternity in his presence. If you need to make that commitment today, we would love to help you in any way that we can. If you're subject to the Lord's invitation, we ask that you'll let us know at this time as we sing.